In this episode of Inbound After Hours, Ricky chats to Luke Carthy, an e-commerce growth consultant, and he chats about growing your business via e-commerce. If you like what he talks about and want to find out tips like this, head to loveinbound.com and sign up for our event where Luke is speaking in February. My name, of course, is Luke Carthy, and I am a bloke who is borderline obsessed with e-commerce uh, and all parts of it. So SEO for sure is what I do. It's my bread and butter. Um, CRO, but not in the, in the typical sense, but everyone says that, but it, it, yeah. it is a thing. Um, and also just, just good common sense user experience is, is kind of what I take care of. So um, I guess to, to, to summarize it, the reason why I love e-commerce is because it's quite easy to see uh, net growth. It's quite easy to see yeah. where you're making a difference. Um, pinpoint analytics and changes that you've made that are having a difference in AOV and baskets and all that sort of good stuff. So I absolutely love it. Um, and the fact that it's super granular, you know, you've got potentially millions of products, millions of categories, millions of uh, search terms and all that sort of good stuff. Um, and no e-commerce site is ever the same. They are also different. So um, no, I love it. I love it. No, you're preaching to choir there. I spent the majority of my early career as a um, in e-com, uh, particularly around SEO and general yeah. growth, like you said. So definitely similar background to myself. So totally understand that seeing the impact of things quickly and with data and stuff is is about as good as it gets, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. So from your background, your experience, what are some of the sort of common common things you come across with? when you're looking at growing e-com sites, what are the common mistakes people are making or the common errors that you're fixing? Yeah, these are the things that, I guess, for a checklist, if you like, the 101s, the things you start with, they come up time and time again. Um, I have not long written a blog post, actually, about this particular topic or one of the points, which is internal search um, or the site search, to give it another name. So, um, so many retailers neglect it. So many retailers neglect this thing. And it's like, for research, for information, just understanding what, what struggles your customers have and how they search and their language is really, really important. Um, even like whether they're asking questions or just searching for items. Um, but I'll give you a, a perfect example. So I used to have a client. Uh, actually, no, tell a lie. I still have that client. And um, they, they basically have one of their own brands. And I can't say what the brand is, unfortunately, but they... Yeah. they neglected search so bad that when you search for that brand name, no results were found. Um, so it's kind of like walking into Asda and then or going online to Asda and then searching for Asda and it's like, I don't know what you're after. Like, what you're <laughs> yeah, what's that? Um, <laughs> yeah. It was crazy, but this thing happened for two years. Wow. Like for two years, people would, it was like their number two um, searched for term in the, in the, on their internal search, but it was so poorly optimized, it, it, never, it never worked. So... It, it, I can't stress enough how important it is to get your internal search right, especially as it's so closely tied to conversion, um, closely tied to UX and customer sort of positioning, if you like. Um, it's super important. And it's really easy as well. You know, yeah. it's, it's not something that necessarily costs money to put right. So, um, yeah, that, that's definitely a big one. No, I like that. I mean, it's something, obviously, we, we probably come clients and stuff, and no one ever brings that up. I don't think anyone's ever brought it up to us that like let's look at internal site search and see what people are searching for and optimize that experience i don't i'm trying to think of anyone who's ever thought about that from the client side so yeah. like you say the, the wealth of data in there and the ease of making the journey uh so much simpler for the customer is amazing um, yeah 
It is. It is. For people getting started with internal search, you've never even thought that it's a thing or a problem or an opportunity. Where do they get started? Yeah, so Google Analytics is is absolutely my go-to. Um, but again, if if you people haven't ever considered to look at their internal search, there's a good chance that Google Analytics won't be configured to look at it out of the box. Um, but if you have an internal search, which nine times out of ten people do, you have one that powers um, is powered by URL. So you know, uh, website.com slash search slash search terms. Um, and you can just start to find out um, precisely how many people or how many users have searched for um, particular search terms and see how you're performing. Um, that's normally the first one-on-one, but I did a whole talk around this at a number of places, I think one of which was, was MasterCon this year. Yeah. Um, and there's some real big players in the world. There's Best Buy, there's, there's Home Depot, there's, there's even Argos, right, here in the UK who have made mistakes or uh, are missing the, the ball in terms of internal search. Um, but it absolutely starts with, with that. Your simple data, a simple report, your page report, page URL report, and identify, first of all, how many people are using search and two, what are the key queries? Um, I think once you've started to answer that question, you can then look at how you scale it up across millions of different queries, um, which is something that I, I like to do for, for a number of clients. Um, but GA is normally where it absolutely starts. Do you tend to find it has a pretty long tail on internal search? You tend to find there's a few words that have always got that big chunk of volume on and you can quickly make a bespoke version for those before you then go and script or query out the rest of them. Is there normally like these big bulky keywords on there as well? Exactly. Yeah, it's not. It's not just again going back to the whole point of granularity in e-commerce. Um, it's not just about the big, easy win keywords, right? You might have um, a million queries, say, a year, or a million unique queries a year, um, and maybe only half of those million have been queried once. But that's still a half a million searches, <laughs> right? So it's still important to go and chase that. I'll give you one perfect example as well. I'm just checking online now to see if that's actually the case. Um, but what I did find out is last week. Uh, homebase.co.uk, um, when you search for Black Friday, you get no results found. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Which is crazy. I mean, I'm yes, it's not Black Friday, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. but people start searching for Black Friday from the beginning of September, late August. It, it, you look at Google Trends, the traffic starts to spike about then. Um, in a retail, in a world where retail and Black Friday is, is you know, it's entering its peak quarter, if you like, yeah. You can't afford to have these emissions, right? And even if Homebase don't don't do Black Friday this year or never have done Black Friday, it's, it doesn't mean that you don't optimize for it. You can still yes. have, hey, look, you're not doing Black Friday, but look at other offers, for example. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But it's just that level of UX and kind of, not common sense, it's probably the wrong word, but just being able to offer a good experience that can say to customers, hey, we don't do this, but we do this. Or if we do do this, then here's how you find it, you know? Um, but big retailers get it wrong too as well as the small guys is what I'm trying to say. No, for sure. And obviously the size of opportunity for those guys with the amount of products and the amount of internal searches and traffic they get that you make some of these changes, it can have a really big impact on it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So when we're looking at things like internal search, so when I've done this in the past, um, I think I don't know how much this has moved on since, but it's probably fair to say the majority of CMSs, if you left them without configuring it, don't do the best job in the world of internal search. Um, What do you recommend people do when they, so say they find, I don't know, 
popular product that's getting searched a lot, you put that in your own internal search and I mean, most of the time that product doesn't even come up if you leave it to its own devices. Yeah. Uh, what do <laughs> people do there? Would you send them direct to the product URL rather than a search results page or would you optimize that search results page? What's a, what's a good experience look like? Yeah, so I guess there's, there's almost two answers to this question, if you like. I think one is um, if someone is searching for an item code or something where there's only one result found, um, I would absolutely still send them to the search results page. And, you know, you could argue and say that by doing that, you've caused the customer an extra click because they've been forced to click on a product after the search for it to get to the product they want. Yes, I hear you. However, you could tomorrow launch a campaign that says, uh, you know, let's say, for example, they're searching for a particular Black & Decker drill. If Black & Decker still exist, I don't even know. Um, but if they do, and you have, a say, a, a site-wide 10% off Black & Decker campaign, yeah. um, if you, they have searched for that particular item code and gone straight to the item, they may miss that promotion. But if you're doing it so they go to the search results page, then equally they can see that campaign on that search results page. Yeah. Then you also have to think about analytics and reporting in the sense that if you are pushing customers from a search term straight to a product page, you can't track that search because it's a redirect. So you will never know how many people are searching versus how many people are entering the product straight away. So there's a number of reasons why you shouldn't do that. Yeah. Um, I think on, on top of that, also, if you launch a, a uh, if you've got two drills with very similar part numbers, maybe they have the wrong one or maybe they only have a partial part number. So assuming that they want that specific item is, yeah. is probably going to land you in hot water. Um, I think to answer this another way, let's assume we've got customers searching for 10,000 different part numbers. How do you do this at scale? How do you make sure that every part number customers are searching for is taking them to the right products? Um, and in a perfect world, you'd have an enterprise level search engine like Fat Finder or uh, who else is there? SLI, for example, where you can get all this report and data out of the box. Um, but one, that's on the assumption that it's been configured correctly, and two, that you have that search engine provider. Yeah. In most cases, this isn't going to happen, right? Um, so in cases like this, this is where I absolutely adore and love custom extraction. Uh, and again, I've done talks about this. And what that allows you to do in its simplest form is crawl as many search URLs as you want and identify the top 10 results for every single search term at scale and just export that in a spreadsheet. So to give a perfect use case for this, you could have 5,000 items or 5,000 search terms. And for those 5,000 5, search terms, identify the top 10, if there is 10, items that have been returned. And then you can quickly see in column number one, for example, whether that is the best match item. Um, and you can do that every week. So that way you know for a fact that your top search terms are being served with the best possible products. Oh, amazing. Yeah, if anyone listening hasn't got into their uh, internal search yet, that's some good places to get started. And yeah, do it. I'll, I'll link yeah. through to the full talks as well if they're available online. Um, yeah. What are some of the other big things that you tend to work on? What are some of the other sort of common things you tend to come across? Um, so I think SEO is kind of one of those things that is, it's got loads of different nuances, loads of different um, areas. But so I'll kind of leave that to one side because SEO is, is fairly extensive. <laughs> yeah. And I can talk about canonicals and hatred lands on blue in the face. But um, how people manage products that are no longer in existence, right? No longer sold anymore. Um, I'm particularly passionate about this one. And the reason why is because 
for a number of retailers, whether you're B2B or B2C, we have seen um, overnight increases in revenue by a, a result of putting this right. So, you know, think about an industry like apparel, clothing, like ASOS, for example, um, the, the amount of product churn that they have must be insane. You know, every season there's a whole new wardrobe of, of things that they're probably selling um, and items don't stay on the shelf they're on. So how do you stop equity every single season from just hemorrhaging away from your site, right? You've got 8,000 items, 7,000 of them are purely seasonal, for example. You kill your spring and you mm-hmm. go into or you kill your summer and you go into autumn. If you do that, your equity is just going to tack, right? Um, so there is a nuanced way, and there is it, it's not a one-size-fits-all, but there is ways in which you can handle products you no longer sell to offer a better user experience, to ensure that you don't lose that SEO equity, so you still rank um, across a number of your terms, and you can still sell um, the products that your customers were looking for. Um, so to give a very quick example of what I mean here, and I think maybe this works better in technology, uh, you've got someone who's online looking for a TV, Black Friday, we're in, we're in, we're in topic. So let's say it's, it's the day after Top of Monday and that TV is sold through. But this bloke has picked up a copy of the, um, the Daily Mail. They've seen it in there and they think, right, awesome, I'm going to go and check it out. So they go onto the Argos website, they punch in this, this item and there's nothing there. Um, so the customer's annoyed. Argos can't do anything about it because they haven't got it in stock. But the way that they should do it is say, look, hey, customer, we don't have this item anymore. Um, you've managed to find it, which is great. So the customer managed to find what they're looking for. Um, but we don't sell this item anymore. So actually, here's some alternatives or a direct replacement for this specific item. So it's a much better way of allowing the customer to think, okay, do you know what? Yeah, I can't have that, but I can have this, which might only be £50 or £20 more expensive. Um, it's a similar spec, it's a similar size, it's a similar color, um, and they've potentially kept a customer, they've won a customer. Um, experience B, if you like, is someone's done the exact same experience on, say, uh, I don't know, curries. Um, no item found. Okay, that's a shame. I can't see the TV, and now you can't give me any alternatives, so I'm now doubly frustrated. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of things you can do there which help SEO, help CRO, help UX, and just help the customer to find what it is that they are ultimately looking for. Yeah. I guess from a search perspective, there's a, there's a lot of ways of, of solving that problem. So you could, uh, someone searches for the item, you could uh, redirect the out-of-stock one to the latest version of the model. You could leave the out-of-stock one on the site and tell yeah. them what the model one is. Obviously, there's pros and cons of all of those ways of dealing with it. In your experience, what's a single best when to do that oh big question big question um balls and advice right so what i will say is the the best way to get this done is not to redirect um and the reason why i say not to redirect is because who's deciding that redirect needs to happen like who's deciding that product a is to go to product b um and who has decided that that is the best possible product equally unless someone's going to be maintaining and qualifying that every couple of months, that redirect is probably going to stay stagnant. So if, if you're looking at a, an item that's five years old, it's got to be redirected to a four-year-old item. Um, you know, it's not something that you have to maintain. Um, on top of that, if you think about it from a user's perspective, if you're looking for a red, um, you know, like a red, what do you want to call it? Uh, toy car, for example, and you're redirected to a blue one, you'd be like, what, 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 what what's going on here? Um, 
so you're, you're frustrated, you think there might be a technical issue and it, it doesn't quite sit very well. So I think by leaving the product there and making it very clear to the customer that what they're looking for is no longer available. However, we have some alternative choices. Or even if you don't have some alternative choices and it's just a carousel of like top sellers, it's better than yeah. the results found or through on redirects in somewhere, somewhere else. Um, but I think in priority of worst to best, 404 is absolutely the worst, right? Yeah. Like, don't just... <laughs> die um 410 or 410 is kind of like almost as bad but technically a little bit better 301 is yeah if you really have to then all right fair enough but i'm not i'm not a fan um best is kind of leave it live with a good message good ux and good alternatives makes sense and a lot of a lot of what you're saying is yeah like you say don't come back to the world common sense but it's it's more thinking of it from the user perspective rather than the search perspective. If you were that person looking for the thing and it wasn't there, what would you like to happen? And, and like yeah. I said, what I'd like to happen is just someone telling me that's a product doesn't exist anymore. It's gone out of stock for whatever reason. And here's whatever alternatives are available. Like it's just, yeah, put yeah. Shoes, isn't it? And there is a couple of retailers that are doing this really well, actually. One of which I uh, quite admire is John Lewis. Um, they do a brilliant job of, of doing this online. Again, in the world of all sorts of, again, seasonality, if you like, in furniture. Um, tech, if you like, replaces two or three times a year. You know, the old iPhone to the new one, the old laptop to the new one. They've got a really good way of having the, the keeping the product alive um, and also having a nice user experience to kind of walk you through, okay, do you know what? It's a shame you can't have this, but you can have this. Um, but also, just to be clear as well, because I'm guessing that if there's an SEO audience listening to this, they'll be pulling their hair out thinking, dude, what are you talking about, man? You, you, just, you just blow it in URLs and stuff. Well, there's a very big difference between keeping a product live and having it indexed, right? Mm -hmm. I, I did not for a second say keep these things indexed indefinitely. So just to put that disclaimer out there, <laughs> yeah. um, that I'm not suggesting, you know, if you are John Lewis, having half a billion products sitting there in an index and half of them you can't sell. That's, that's not Yeah, good. compounded every single season. That would uh, I'll be quite big in a few years for sure. It would, it would. No, that's a really, really good clarification. Um, well, what I like about your background is you, you have, you've done a lot of these things in-house at companies and the, the challenges from people we normally speak to are agencies or software companies. And I think the perspective's normally very different. For, for people, and most of our audiences in-house, I'm quite liking the synergy there. So for, for people who are working in-house, how do you get people who don't have a clue what you're talking about here to care? So like people's bosses yeah. in mid-sized companies, you're yeah. there to grow we come. How do you get them to care about this stuff? How did you go about it? You know what, I love this question. So thanks for asking it. Um, because it is a difficult one, I think. You know, walking into your senior manager or even the MD's office and kind of being that person, that man or woman who has to convince that person that this is the right thing to do. How, how do you do that? Um, and I think to answer that question, you need to leave all the science out of the, literally leave it at the door. So when you step into whoever your, your line manager is, um, leave that technical crap at the door. They don't care. Um, you need to kind of talk about um, money you're winning as a result of potentially doing this, money you're losing. But actually, there's there's more... Um, there's more important things than just money, as ridiculous as it sounds in the world of business, which is how is it going to benefit your customers, right? Um, any boss worth their salt, wherever they are in the business, their first priority of care is customers, whether it's a customer or a client, customer. Um, so 
you know, if you can paint a picture of the problem that they have at the moment, um, with whatever it is you're trying to talk about, the frustrations that they have at the moment, the solution you have, and how that solution solves that problem, then normally that's how it wins because you haven't spoke about the technicalities. You haven't spoke about the how much money it's going to cost and how much development resource it's going to burn, all the technical nonsense they don't care about. You've just spoken in plain English, which is, here's the problem. Here's how big of a problem it is. Here's how much it's costing us right now. Um, here's the solution, and here's the impact it's going to have. Um, and then what you typically find is if the question is, how much is this going to cost? That's normally the question that you want to hear. Yeah. Um, because that means that they're naturally interested in what it is you've got, you've got to say. Um, so, you know, that, that works particularly well, I feel. Um, and I think working in-house as well, you, you understand the customer. So you, you have close relationships with things like customer services. Yeah. You have closer relationships with like the returns department and warehouse and that sort of thing. So you can start to use politics and maybe some internal information to kind of get where you want to be. Um, but what I've certainly learned is, you know, my ex-boss who is now a client, great guy, but has zero technical knowledge at all. He doesn't care for it. He knows we need a website, but he doesn't really understand why. So he's kind of the worst, if you like, but also best candidate to try and get in his head and say, this is what we need. Yeah. Um, but the minute I drop the word SEO, the minute I drop the word page speed, the minute I drop the word bandwidth or development resource or tickets or epics or sprints, he's like, dude, shut up, man. I don't care. <laughs> he just wants to know what the problem is and how you're going to fix it. Yeah, I've noticed when uh, looking at your website and the way you actually introduced yourself in this podcast, you, you do try to steal away a little bit from saying I'm, a, I'm an e-com SEO or I'm an e-com CRO. You just talk about I, I grow e-com. And is, do you think that's yeah. where that language has come from, having a boss like, like that previously? I think so. I think so. And I think people have been, not brainwashed, that's a bit of a stronger word, but people have been conditioned to feel that when they need more sales or more customers, they want they need SEO. Like that is what I seem to find is is a is a constant assumption is that I need to grow my business online by twenty percent. Therefore, I need SEO because I need more traffic. When actually, the bigger thing that you need to think about is what is it your business is or isn't doing at the moment. And that may not even be anything to do with SEO. It could be going back to the whole point of internal search, or it could be going back to the point of your payment methods, or your checkout, your delivery options, or your returns policy, or just loads of stuff. Um, SEO is, I guess, a way in which you go about e-commerce growth, but it is not e-commerce growth. And I think mm -hmm. there has to be a separate determination to, to understand that, right? It's kind of like assuming that you're sick, so you need painkillers. You know, painkillers <laughs> might be part of your treatment, but it's not the treatment, right? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, and that's why I think there's a difference between, there is a difference between SEO and e-commerce. I think SEO in its strictest sense, if we completely distill it down into what it is, it's the, it's the skill or science of getting more traffic to your website. Yeah. There is nothing there about improving sales. Yeah. Um, now, I know there's agencies and there's consultants who, again, probably spitting their feathers out listening to this, thinking, what are you talking about, dude? But the reality is SEO improves rankings. That's what we want. That's what the client should want. But actually what the client wants is more customers, more sales, better retention, better AOV. And then you have to look about, well, you know what? SEO is probably a mix of what you need in there, but there's more than just SEO. And that's why I don't like to kind of condition myself or put myself across as a pure play e-com SEO. I do SEO, but that's not all and the be all and end all of what I do. No, I like that. I think 
uh, I think you got the, the analogies in there and stuff explained very well. I guess like any boss or client, the simplest metric to understand is put more in at the top, get more out of the bottom. But yeah. Yeah. in between, you've got the particularly e-commerce. In between, you've got so many other points that affect the funnel and could yeah. uh, have a bigger multiplier on the funnel than just pouring more in the top. So Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, a go-to... A go-to reference I like to use um, is a previous client and, again, a previous employer, actually. Um, we didn't focus on SEO for 12 months. So traffic was roughly the same. It was kind of steady, maybe 5% up or down year on year. Um, we focused on a bunch of other stuff. But my point here is um, sales year on year were up 175% without focusing on SEO. And I think the reason why I talk about that is it's just kind of highlights um, and, and tangibilizes, if you like, that SEO is part of it. But now we can double down on it, right? So we're in a situation where we've managed to do, you know, grow in a brilliant sort of way, which is fantastic, um, without really spending much money besides dev resource or, you know, putting in a few tools and bits of software. We spent probably, I don't know, a couple of grand over the year to sort that sort of stuff out. But because it's your own website, you can influence these things a heck of a lot quicker. Yeah. You know, when you talk about SEO and, and rankings, you're at the mercy of, of other vendors, of other search engines. So the fact that we've managed to get this growth means that um, bosses and senior execs and even stakeholders are kind of like, Do you know what, these guys know what they're doing. So when they ask for some money, we're just going to give it to them because they've <laughs> justified why they should be here. When you're the kind of person who comes in and says, hey, we haven't done anything yet, but can you give us three grand a month or something for SEO? It's kind of like, no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, SEO typically isn't a quick win so if you can go and no. do quick things on your site make some money and then ask for an SEO budget you've then doubled down on, on that resource um, and that goes down with the whole in-house thing you were speaking about earlier and client side and all that sort of cool stuff yeah no what I like about that is the more of these friction points you solve on the site itself uh, when you do solve them it's it'll rise the tide of everything so when you do start putting more traffic on top whether it's from SEO, PPC, affiliate marketing, doesn't really matter. Wherever that yeah. traffic is coming from, having those underlying problems uh, sorted and friction points removed just simply increases the conversion rate for, for every source that's coming to the website. So you're really yeah. getting a massive multiplier out of that work, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think just to very quickly um, whet the appetite of anyone listening who is in the industry of PPC and paid search, um, I was sitting at a talk at... Um, uh, a brand new kind of mini meetup slash conference called Tech SEO Summit in Sheffield, um, which launched a few weeks ago. And it was this great speaker. Irritatingly, I've forgotten what her name was, but she was fantastic. And anyway, she spoke about the impact of page speed um, and paid search. So long story short, they were spending, say, you know, one of the metrics they were looking at was, was CTR, click-through rate. Um, which was a steady sort of 8%, not too bad. Um, but they were never really looking at performance uh, metrics in terms of return on actual spend, all this sort of stuff. My point is, all that Google is going to tell you about is how um, people searched and how often of those searches people clicked. It yeah. doesn't tell you about the experience they had once they get to your website. So if someone's waiting like six seconds for a page to load once they've clicked on the Google ad, as far as Google's concerned, you've got a good CTR rate, man. You've got a good quality score. Yeah, it's, it's spend money. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Um, but this particular lady focused on this client um, and she improved their page speed like fourfold. And as a result, 
the return on investment started to bear fruit. But my point here is that, you know, growing traffic via paid search or via SEO, and to your point, via affiliates or however you do it, is not necessarily the way to do it. You've got to look at what you can control in your own environment first. No. Um, and that just reminded me of that real quick for a second, that, that presentation. But I'll, I'll, I'll send you across the, um, the deck and the, and the speaker. She was brilliant. No, brilliant. I'll link to that. Yeah, I mean, exactly. That's a, a classic example of uh, a sort of site factor, which if you fix will pretty much make every channel you run to the site better, site speed, yeah, yeah. get that lower. It helps everything that you're working on for sure. Um, while you were talking about conferences and speaking and stuff, obviously you, you yourself, you've moved into that arena and you've done talks at big places now, MozCon, SearchLove, Brighton SEO. So congratulations on that. How did, Thank you. How did you get yourself into that arena? Do you know what? It was, um, I stumbled on it, if I'm honest. It was something that I've aspired to do for a, about a year before it actually happened. Um, but it all started on Twitter. So there's a gentleman called Stephen Kenwright, who you may or may not know. Yeah. Um, he's recently started an agency called Rise at Seven. But long story short, uh, there's a there was a conference called Search Leads, yeah. and uh, as with these things, you know, people have to cancel, they have to drop out. So unfortunately, one of the speakers dropped out 72 hours before the conference. Wow. So Stephen reached out to Twitter, pulling his hair out, freaking the heck out, saying, "Right, I need someone <laughs> who can fill a gap." in next to no time. So I was like the kind of guy who went on Twitter and I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll put, you know, I'll go for it. I'm <laughs> fully expected to not hear anything. Yeah. Anyway, like half an hour later, Stephen slides on my DMs like, dude, that, that topic we have to have. And it was actually the topic on internal search, which we've been talking about a little bit here. Wow. It was like, we have to have it. I'm so fed up with these typical SEO kind of panda penguin nonsense talk. <laughs> this is real shit. And I was like, okay, so yeah, I'll do it. And then like, it dawned on me that I had 72 hours to go away and build a presentation. <laughs> god um so it literally started right there just over about 18 months ago now wow um search leads messing around that's a that's a good conference that's a well-known conference yeah yeah it, it is so i was kind of like oh god first directory now oh god first time speaking in seo like. <laughs> so it kind of at first you're kind of thinking do i even know what i'm talking about like i'm going to stand in front of a couple <laughs> thousand people potentially and it's like yeah. i doesn't know what he's talking about <laughs> Um, anyway, it went well. Um, yeah. The feedback was fantastic. Stephen was chuffed. I was really happy. Um, I got very drunk that night to celebrate. And it kind of just snowballed from there. So it went on to a number of small, intimate meetups, which I love. I actually prefer the small, intimate ones. I think you get time, yeah. more time to spend with people. Um, it then snowballed onto Brighton SEO, and then Brighton SEO went to Search Love, and then Search Love went to MozCon, and it's just yeah. blown up. Um, but yeah, I'm super grateful for it, and I, it's something I'm, I'm absolutely still doing um, and love to do. So. Brilliant. Is MozCon the, the pinnacle, really, for you? I know my love of SEO, I guess, started a lot with Moz and Rand's Wife Board Fridays and all that sort of stuff. So that's always yeah. been one of the sort of pinnacles that I could see. Did you, was that a similar sort of thing for you? Is it a big moment? Yeah. I was, I was, I remember getting the email. So I got an email, um, I don't know, maybe six, eight months before the conference. Uh, and I was like, whatever, man, this is fake. Like, I, I, I just thought it was Marcus, um, yeah. Yeah. So I left it in my inbox for a few days and I thought, you know what, I'll probably better, better open this. And see yeah. what um, so I opened it and then I had a, like a personal invite. I had to read it about three times. So I was like, yeah. Nah. 
I had a, an invite to go and speak. They saw me speak at Search Love and they said they want some of that in the States. And I was like, hell yes. Um, so that I got invited down. They, you know, I did the whole thing. It was a, my, my longest slot at, at the time, um, been half an hour. Um, single track, which I prefer, I love. Um, and again, a different audience, right? This is in the States. It's a slightly different um, vibe, I guess, if you like. Huge conference. And I, I, I loved it. It was fantastic. Um, they then kind of loved it enough to ask me to go and do a whiteboard Friday. I was like, yeah, I can do one of those as well. So I became the person I wanted to be when I first got into SEO at like the age of 15. I was like the person on the opposite side of the screen watching my own whiteboard Friday. It was so weird. But yeah, it's that's been the highlight for sure. What a cool moment. Yeah, that's that's something every SEO must aspire to do is do a whiteboard Friday for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we, we obviously run an event and you're coming to speak at that in Feb. Yeah. Uh, granted, it's nowhere near MozCon, but there'll be a couple of hundred people having a good chat about inbound marketing. So what should people expect of you on stage? What sort of speaker are you? What sort of vibes do you kick off? Yeah, so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, uh, to, to living down at you guys um, and, and coming to come down to see what you guys are up to. So thank you again for the opportunity to make that happen. As I said before, the, the small intimate conferences, yeah. are often the best. Um, you can build relationships better. You can go and put yourself in a corner and not be overwhelmed. It's, it's awesome. Um, but the, the sort of vibe is kind of like on this podcast. It's just me. Um, I, I, I like to cuss a little bit. I like to swear, but I'll promise I'll keep it to a minimum. Um, but it's just, it's just relaxed. It's chilled. It's, it's authentic. It's vulnerable. Um, it's informative. But I think also the talks that I like to deliver are the talks that I would like to, to listen to, which is, yeah. great, give me a problem. Um, talk me through the problem and then give me the solution and tell me how the hell I can go and do that in my own <laughs> office. Um, because there's a lot of talks out there that I guess are quite, um, what's what I'm looking for? Maybe broad or thought-provoking. And there's a place for them. Don't get me wrong. I'm not yeah. saying that you know, people that do thought-provoking talks. Yeah, yeah. People that do thought-provoking talks um, aren't worth doing. They absolutely are. But I'm quite a a logical black and white person, right? Either tell me how to do it. That sounds awesome. Give me five tips on how I can go away and do that. And that's tangible takeaways is something I really enjoy. So that's the sort of content I like to, to talk about. Um, specific to what I'm going to be talking about with yourself, so it's going to be actually a new topic. It'll be the first time I've, I've done this topic, which moves more towards analytics and measurability and kind of finding the problems before you go and solve them. Um, so it's, it's key e-commerce GA config that you need to be able to, um, to to go and find these things. So internal search is absolutely one of them. Custom dimensions um, and how you can leverage those. Custom variables, custom reports, um, tag manager, all this sort of cool stuff. But it's the stuff that doesn't come out of the box in GA. You have to go and set this stuff up. Um, but I've seen so many clients, more so now, going solo, um, that just have GA. The yeah. vanilla GA is assuming it's going to be magic and do everything for them. And it yeah. does a lot, but it's it's not you know it's not comprehensive as what you might think unless you go the extra mile. So I'll be yeah. talking about that. Brilliant! I love that. Well, you'll probably see me front row then, so I can't wait for that one. That sounds super excited. Well, really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man, so appreciate you coming on and doing this, Luke. I've had a load of fun doing it and reminiscing a bit on the sort of days I used to get stuck into this stuff. So really, really enjoyed it, and I can't wait to to meet you and uh, listen to your talk at Looking Bad. 
Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. Thanks for reaching out. Um, I appreciate it, Ricky. And as I say, as you said, I'm looking forward to seeing you guys as well. Coming down to that, that swanky joint you've got. So is that is that spot that you you have? And I've, I've seen on the website, on the Living Down website. Is that your offices? Is that is that nearby? How does that work? Yeah, no. So we're quite lucky. Our um, when we were looking for new offices, there was um, someone renovating a, a. I think it's like an 18th century textiles mill. Um, nice. So he had some quite big plans on that. So he said, I, I want to make this, uh, I want to make a bistro and a bar and a cinema and a hotel and a conference room. I was like, do you mind if you just put an office in there <laughs> just for us? Uh, and luckily he said, yeah. So weirdly, we've, we've, got, we've got this office, which is, which is looking great now, thankfully. But literally, I walk out our front door and in, inside the same building, I've got this gym and cinema. It's Europe's longest bar. Um, a hotel and it's like it's a wedding venue sort of room and stuff I'm like wow we've just completely fallen on that we're inside this like leisure complex with a random digital agency in there so yeah we've been pretty lucky with that awesome awesome I'm looking forward to checking that out but uh yeah I mean keep doing what you guys do um HubSpot actually is is I wouldn't say it's a, it's it's one of those sore topics with a client because I I don't know a fat lot about HubSpot but I do hear and, and understand how good of a platform it is. Yeah. And they ended up going for Dynamics in the end, which we won't get into the details of. <laughs> I'm just, I'm like, so I'm, I'm actually looking forward to coming down to you guys and probably walking away with some kind of I don't know quick tips if you like to go and pitch HubSpot. Um, yeah, uh, it's definitely something to look into for for the future because HubSpot are pretty keen on e-com at the moment so they put last year or so they put a decent chunk of investment into uh their e-com apis and stuff which makes yeah. particularly user journey tracking um really really good um inside okay. HubSpot from an e-com perspective um it's a market they've traditionally stayed out of they've been more like b2b lead gen sort of platform but I think I think they're going to make big plays in e-com. Uh, they've done a deal with Shopify uh, yeah. 18 months ago. Got a native integration into there, but I think they'll be moving upstream into more some more serious players from the e-com perspective. So yeah, definitely want to keep an eye on. I think it'll be talked about more and more in the e-com market. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I'm all ears because strategy and, and e-com. Uh, sorry, strategy and email strategy and e-com. Is, um, is what I absolutely take care of as well. So email personalization and, and triggered emails and yeah, taking them to them. So I'm, I'm all ears when it comes to that sort of stuff. So I'm looking forward to having a chat with you about that as well. No, let's definitely do that, Luke. Really looking forward to that. That'd be good.